I think that it's a, a very encouraging message for uh, the believer, uh, for the Christian. And it's not just encouraging because uh, I don't have to be a part of the tribulation, uh, but it, I think it's encouraging because for many reasons, but one of those is that we have a hope at the end of this. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you're, you're going through suffering, you're going through tribulation, but there's a confident expectation that I will be in a resurrected state with Christ, whom I love dearly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today we come to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and to help us better understand this New Testament book, we welcome John Oglesby to the podcast. John is a husband, father, theologian, and writer. He currently serves as Executive Vice President and Associate Professor of Transformative Learning and Leadership at Colorado Biblical University, a subsidiary of Agathon EDU Educational Group. John, it's good to speak with you. Thanks for helping us out. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on. When we come to the book of 1 Thessalonians, John, where do we find ourselves in the Bible? What are its historical and canonical contexts? Uh, historically, I, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a debate whether 1 Thessalonians was Paul's first letter or his second letter. I, I tend to believe it's Paul's second letter, his first being the letter to the Galatians. Uh, and so where we find ourselves is really in Within Paul's missionary journeys, he finds himself going through Greece. So this is roughly around 51 AD. So you've got, of course, the Gospels with the, uh, the story of Christ. We see his ascension. Uh, and so roughly 20 years after Christ's ascension is where we find uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul is writing from, uh, arguably, he's writing from Corinth, uh, writing back after he has traveled through Thessalonica which is uh, the city where the Thessalonians are found. He's writing back to Thessalonica as he's uh, wanting to encourage them. And he's just really explaining his encouragement by them because of their faithfulness in spite of the suffering and affliction that they're finding themselves in. Thessalonica uh, was the largest city in uh, that region. It was the capital, Roman capital city of that region. Uh, and so it was a large port town. There was uh, a lot of trade. Uh, it was a very successful city. Uh, and so Paul is writing back. There's There was apparently uh, enough residential Jews where the, it constituted a synagogue. Uh, we see Paul interacting with the synagogue there. Um, and so we are seeing him writing back and kind of encouraging him, uh, encouraging the Thessalonians and being encouraged by them. Uh, biblically, where we find it in the book of Acts, the background for 1 Thessalonians, uh, as we'll see in uh, the second chapter of Thessalonians, Paul mentions his suffering uh, and uh, kind of the encouragement he has after his suffering from there and leaving and going on after Thess uh, Thessalonica. We see that in Acts 17. We get a little bit of context here. And actually, uh, I want to read just a, just a bit out of Acts 17, Paul and Thessalonica says now when, and I'm reading out of the NASB, says now when they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so of course, uh, Paul's practice was to go to these cities. He's traveling on his missionary journeys, and he's going into these cities, and he always visited the synagogues first. He'd go to the Jews first, spend some time there, and then he would leave and go and talk to the Gentiles. As you'll see all of this, if you walk through Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, you'll see all of these, and this is all in Acts 17, kind of the practice in which Paul uh, had on his travels. And so he goes in and he reasons with them. And of course, this is after the resurrection. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus. And so this is what Paul, this is the message Paul is giving. And this becomes apparent also in uh, uh, Thess 1 Thessalonians. And so he goes in and he's reasoning with the Jews here in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. 
Okay, so we see Jews, Greeks, and the leading women, right? They're, they're all, these are turning, they're believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, but the Jews, uh, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And so we see this persecution that's happening, that's following Paul and Silas here. Uh, and it's the Jews that are upset with the uh, with the message of Jesus Christ. It's the message of Jesus Christ that got Jesus Christ crucified, ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, of course, that's his uh, messianic message, uh, a, a bit different. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, as Jesus says, uh, it's me they hate, right? Talking about himself. And so we see this persecution. It's coming from the Jews and their uh, wittily using the message that uh, these people are proclaiming that there's this other king, and we all know Caesar's the king, right? So they're kind of playing with the uh, uh, Roman belief system, if you will, uh, to try and get uh, persecution to uh, for for the Roman for the government there and the people of the city to come against. Uh, those who are following the message of Jesus Christ. And so we see this great amount of persecution. Of course, we see Paul and Silas. You continue on uh, verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, right? So they're going to continue this. And, and that persecution is going to really follow them as, as they're going from city. It's really kind of what's driving them out to the next place. It's, it's kind of a driving force as they're having to leave this persecution and and uh, run from it uh, and continue their, continue their work in other cities. And so we see this here in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians. And it's, I think it's important, too, that we recognize that's really the persecution here. Of course, uh, we see uh, Roman persecution ramp up, but that's not at this point. Uh, not like, you know, you think of uh, Emperor Nero uh, and that in, the, in the mid-60s AD. We're not to that point yet. And so this persecution, as we see in First Thessalonians, I think, is, is primarily actually coming from the Jews uh, who are upset with the message of Jesus Christ. And so canonically, of course, we see, as I mentioned, it's probably Paul's second letter, 51 AD. Uh, and so he has, he has much more uh, to write. But as he's writing First Thessalonians, I would suggest he's in Corinth uh, and he's having some ministry there with the Corinthians. Now, uh, he's not, uh, he hasn't written first or second Corinthians yet. So the, the context there is not what we find in first Corinthians. So, uh, he's continuing his ministry to the synagogue and to the, the Gentiles who are there with the message of Jesus Christ. I appreciate the detail of that explanation of the context, especially how you set it in the book of Acts and the story of the early church. That's really Helpful. I'm wondering, as we come to 1 Thessalonians proper now, can you give us an outline of the book before we get into some of the details, some of the details that you already mentioned in that introduction? Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really cool letter. One of the things I like about 1 Thessalonians is you can see Paul's encouragement. There's really not many other letters uh, that Paul writes. You know, I think of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, right. uh, and they're not really all that encouraging to the to the audience. But 1 Thessalonians is a very encouraging letter, as Paul is, is really greatly encouraged. And we see that even out the gate uh, in 1 Thessalonians. So really, 1 Thessalonians, to kind of break it down in a broad sense, the first chapter really deals with Paul's Thanksgiving, you know, as he as he typically begins his letters with a you know, grace and peace to you, I thank the Lord for you, that kind of introduction. He has that. But in First Thessalonians, it really spans the whole first chapter, uh, you know, and he's giving reason for his thanksgiving. He's thankful for these believers. He's thankful for those in Thessalonica. Uh, and he's he's uh, explaining that throughout the entire chapter. And, and, and he's given an example, like in verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. And, and he's continuing to just explain this encouragement. And then we get into chapter 2, and we really see his, the, a defense of his ministry, similar to what we see in the book of Galatians, uh, a little bit different reason, I believe. Uh, I think Paul in, in uh, chapter 2 is being a little proactive. 
uh, and defending his ministry here, but he goes on and he, and he gives a little bit of a history uh, about his experience with the Thessalonians and what they should remember. Uh, and then he defends his ministry here in chapter two. Uh, but he continues in, in verse 13, he kind of picks back up chapter two. He picks back up uh, with uh, a thanksgiving. He's saying, I, and, and again, I thank the Lord for you because of, I thank the Lord because of your reaction to the word, the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's, in, he's he kind of goes back to that encouragement. I'm continuing to be encouraged here. And then in the end of chapter two, uh, he talks about kind of where he's at, and he and he expresses this great desire to. He's received a message from Timothy, and he expresses a desire to see them, to to uh, appear before them again, spend some time with them, and and uh, see them. And uh, the NASB, I believe, translates it uh, to your face, like face to face, being in person. And then in chapter three, it's kind of a continuation of the end of chapter two. You're going to pick up. Uh, you know, he desires to see them face to face. And for this reason, it's almost like I just couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, so I sent Timothy to you, uh, you know, and he talks about he sent Timothy and Timothy came back and and uh, gave this encouraging message. And so we're going to he's going to come back and it continues with this encouragement. Uh, and then as we end chapter three and go into chapter four, Paul's going to turn from a kind of a history, a Thanksgiving and encouragement uh, here's what's going on. Here's a defense of my ministry. You know, you're going through this. And so I'm going to defend myself. And I, and because of this is what's happening. And then Timothy has encouraged me in your faith. And then we get to chapter four and he starts with, and in typical Pauline fashion, he begins with the exhortations. Uh, do this, right? In chapter four, it's finally then brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, right? So he's going to continue on. Now, in contrast to some of Paul's other letters, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul exhorts, but he even, like in this first verse, gives a caveat of, you're already doing this, but do it more. So it's not, uh, you're, you're terrible and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, so do this. Don't do that. It's, it's continuing what you're doing, but we still have this exhortation, this, uh, this command to action. Do these things. Uh, and again, he's giving commands in the Lord. And then we get into verse 13. As we get into verse 13, it's it's in the context of, of Paul talking about uh, the Thessalonians' love for others, uh, their care for others, and their interaction with outsiders and, and uh, people who are outside of their group. And he goes on and, it, and he talks about what uh, some would call the rapture, right, or the calling up to Jesus Christ and, and uh, the state of those who have passed away, or in, in the NASB, those who have fallen asleep, right? So those who have passed away. Uh, it seems that the Thessalonians would have been uh, struggling with this idea that Jesus uh, either was coming very quickly, very soon, like uh, in, in uh, not a long time, right? He's coming and or he's already come. And what about those who have died and those who have passed away and have fallen asleep? Uh, where are they in all of this, right? And so uh, uh, Paul seems to, to give some encouragement about uh, what is the future? What is to come? Is there a hope to come? And how do we grieve those who, have, who we've lost, who have fallen asleep? And so we get that in chapter 4, verse 13. And then we pick up in chapter 15, and he's going to give more detail. So at the end of chapter 4, it's talking about as, as Jesus returns, what is that going to look like for us? In chapter 5, we're going to get some context on the day of the Lord. Uh, we see some contrasting between two groups of people. Uh, we see uh, he kind of ends this verse uh, 1 through 11, really, of chapter 5, he, he kind of ends this with what is the future for those who believe in Jesus Christ is contrasted to those who don't, and uh, we should be encouraging each other with this information, right? So that's chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, then we get into, into verse 12 of chapter 5, and he's going to continue to, he's going to continue to urge them to be diligent in their uh, in their action, in their conduct, in their in uh, what they should be doing, okay? Because as we as we get into the details of the end times, as presented in First Thessalonians, one might think, well, I can just do nothing. Uh, it's almost like the as as uh, some have coined the escapist idea, uh, I can just do nothing. But Paul continues at the end of chapter five, uh, verses twelve to the end of the letter, 
And he says, no, that's not true. Do these things, continue in these things, be diligent in these things. Uh, and then at the end, starting really in verse 23, he gives his conclusion to the whole letter, uh, which again is, is, is very uh, typical of Paul, you know, uh, may uh, God of peace himself sanctify is kind of a blessing, if you will, at the end of there of the letter. Great. I want to unpack at least a handful of those elements that you just put in the context of the letter as a whole, beginning with this bit of thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Paul is clearly very thankful for these believers. Let me just read verses two, three, and four of the opening chapter. Again, this is part of his greeting, and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. When I read those, John, these don't read like hollow words to me. It seems Paul really is encouraged by the faith of these Christians. Yeah. I'm wondering, what can we learn from that today as believers, living in what seem like very polarized, intense times? How can we and how should we be encouraged to move and give thanks for our brothers and sisters in Christ, like Paul does here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's really, really important. I think what we have to do to start out, just to start, I mean, the starting point is to recognize, recognize identity. We as believers in Jesus Christ, our identity, who we are, is a child of God. It's a believer in Christ. And uh, who you are as a believer is a child of God. And what that, what that implies and what that means, the implications of that is that we are brothers in Christ. Uh, and I, I think we, we tend to miss that, especially when we get into, you know, in, in theory, we don't. We understand that. That's easy principle to grasp, right? We are related in Christ. In, in some sense, we are brothers and sisters in Christ as the body of Christ. Uh, and that's great. But what does that mean for us? Practically, what does that mean? And I think what happens is we get into... Uh, let's see, we'll use the church as an example, the organized church, local church body. We get into this and we see, uh, you know, the structure, right? There's this, there's leadership, you know, whatever kind of church you're in. Let's say there's a plurality of elders. You've got a plurality of deacons. Then you have, you know, this group of people who's leading this Bible study and this group of people who's doing uh, such and such. And then you've got everyone else. And so you, you build this uh, sort of system. And there's nothing wrong with the system, right? We see this in, in uh, and this isn't on first and second Timothy, but we see this in Titus, this kind of system laid out at some level. There's, there's organization to the local church. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it's when that, I think we can do it wrongly in the sense that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? For example, a, a big thing within the, the evangelical church is the raising up of the pastor onto this pedestal, right? You, you, you elevate the pastor to this almost divine position, uh, when in, in reality, he's simply a brother in Christ, and he's been given a responsibility and a stewardship that is different from others, but nonetheless, he's a brother in Christ. And so there's a love there that, that goes beyond uh, your position or your role or your stewardship, because at the foundational level, we are brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a sense in which uh, there, that love comes out. You know, the love for your brother and sister in Christ. And and I'll give another example. You mentioned I was, you know, a VP at uh, Versity. And part of that, we've been traveling a lot for conferences. And what I've been able to do in this role is I've, I've met a lot of new people. Uh, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters that I didn't know, I had no idea who they were before doing this. You know, that we go to a church, Bible Fellowship Church in, in Past Christian, Mississippi. And I met a group of people there that I've never met before. Uh, and it brought me so much joy. Because I was able to, I was able to interact with with brothers and sisters in Christ I had never met, and we had that common identity. And as I as I would spent time with them and recognized the discipleship that was going on with them and the glory and honor they were giving the Lord and their actions, man, that was just so encouraging to me. Because we're on common mission, we're accomplishing common ground. Uh, you know, we're we're honoring the Lord in our actions. And when I see others fulfilling that mission, fulfilling that purpose, I just, it, it just feels, I mean, even talking about it, it makes me, I'm not a very emotional person, but this is one of those areas where it just wells up within me and it just brings me such encouragement and joy. And I think that's very similar to what 
Paul is mentioning here. He he gets a message from Timothy that even amongst persecution, those in Thessalonica, they're faithful to the Lord. You know, they're not perfect, as we'll see, but they're faithful. They love the Lord and they're they're pursuing him. And it it I can just see Paul getting that report and going, I've got to write a letter. I've got to write to them. You know, I, I'm just so encouraged by them. I want to be an encouragement to them. And so we see this, this fellowship and building up of each other, this edification of each other. Uh, and I think that's a really, really powerful, powerful thing that the Lord has given us is this, and, and uh, community is kind of a loaded word at this point, but this, this fellowship of believers, this community of brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's a lot of encouragement to be had there. And I think this is this is Paul's writing here. You know, he's he's when you get that message, it's it's uh, like this welling up I was talking about. You know, we give thanks to God always for all of you. You know, we're just so grateful for you constantly bearing in mind. Right. So it's this thing that's like it's constantly on his mind. He's he's constantly giving thanks for them. And I think as we read on, as you read on through the first chapter, again, he's going to continue and he's going to really give the reason in verse five, as he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, right? So he's he's looking at them, he says, I give thanks all the time because the gospel came to you and, and you believed and it came in power and, and you are my brothers and sisters, right? It, it, it kind of points to that identity again. And he's going to continue on in the rest of the chapter and kind of expound on that. Uh, and it's that I think it points back to that identity and common mission and faithfulness that he sees in the Thessalonians. And we have today, we have that same opportunity uh, like I mentioned, going down to Mississippi and seeing their faithfulness. And it's funny, uh, I would never compare myself to Paul, but I had the same reaction. I get, you know, I get back and, and, you know, it's typical whenever we have a conference, I always email the, whoever led it, you know, thankful, thank you for your hosting and your gracious and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I had to copy everyone that was there. I was just like, you guys are doing it right. You know, y'all are doing wonderful work. You're encouraging to me and to everyone who is there and uh, praise the Lord for you guys because because it's happening. You guys are doing it well. And uh, and so I see I can I can see Paul's writing here is just like you guys are amazing and you're an encouragement to me. And uh, so super thankful that we have that opportunity and and can do the same, you know, and and we should like you said, we should be doing that. Uh, we should encourage and, and voice that thankfulness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I just out of love for them. What counsel would you offer to someone who does not feel thankful at this moment for God's people? Yeah. Maybe there's a rift in their church or they've been hurt or they just don't feel what it seems like Paul is feeling here and what you just described. They want to give thanks, but they see no reason to give, give thanks. How would you counsel them toward more of a 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 type view of the brothers and sisters that they have? Yeah, I think it's difficult because what what happens in that setting is uh, we find ourselves in a circumstance and it's hard to see past it. It's hard to see past that, our, our experience, our bubble of with what happens. But what I would encourage you with is uh, let the scriptures speak louder uh, than the experience. And and what I mean by that is is understand that uh, uh, the scriptures give a broader message. It's kind of like this, and it's hard to do, but this zooming in, zooming out concept, uh, when we're in our, when we're in our circumstance, we can, we can kind of get tunnel vision. We can be zoomed in just on this, on this circumstance. And, and it's easy to do that because that's what you're experiencing in day-to-day -day life, right? Day-to-day -day living. That's what you have to deal with. Uh, but take a moment. I would encourage you to take a moment and try to zoom out. Zoom out a little bit. Look at the scriptures. And I think what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is that uh, there's a lot uh, out there. There's a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ out there who are doing well, who are doing it right. Uh, uh, and when I mean doing it right, I mean they're uh, loving and they're they're following the Lord and are being faithful to his words. Uh, and then when you can kind of zoom out and see that picture seek out brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing well. There's, there's a time of confrontation, right? Going to those, you know, there's a rift in the church. There's, you know, a brother who's just done you wrong in a sense. They've just, 
you know, there's a various things they could have done that that's hurtful and wrong and they've sinned against you. And there's a time for confrontation, for going and saying, Hey, you, you've done this and, and it hurt me, you know, and, and here's, you know, lay out and go through kind of a church discipline type mentality, but at a personal level, you approach them and, and talk about that. And that's certain, certainly right. Uh, but at the same time, there's also a place for zooming out and identifying other brothers and sisters in Christ that are like those in, in, in Thessalonica, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's wise. Thank you for that. Now, as we shift gears, though, you mentioned this earlier also, that similar to the letter of Galatians, Paul seems to defend his ministry in chapter two, his apostolic ministry. What in this letter prompted his self-defense? And in what ways did he settle the issue in his writing? Yeah, so I, as I kind of mentioned earlier, he does the same thing in the book of Galatians, but I think it's in a very different context. It, it's in this, it's, I think it's in the same historical context. Okay, so again, I was mentioning 1 Thessalonians and Galatians were written right around the same time. Some would, some would suggest Galatians was a little bit later. Uh, I think there's an early writer around the uh, the Jerusalem Council of the Book of Galatians, and so I think that's Paul's first letter, and this would be a second. So we get a similar uh, historical context with the with the Jews. Some call them Judaizers, right? The the Jews were following Paul in his journey, and as Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Jews are coming behind and either boldly proclaiming that he's wrong or proclaiming that you have to be a Jew first, right? And so we see this that problem dealt with in the Jerusalem Council in uh, Acts 15, if you want to go look at that. And so as, as Paul is going, he's preaching the gospel, and as we saw in Acts 17, we see the Jews coming behind him and persecuting and trying to rile up the, the locals within each of those cities. And so they're giving a, a gospel contrary to what Paul is giving. And as we see in Galatians, the Galatians were following that message. And so Paul, you know, he's, he's, he's saying things like, I can't believe you've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've already left the gospel and went back to uh, a place of bondage, right? And so we see the Galatians, those who are the audience for the letter of the Galatians, they've given into that message given by the Jews. And I think in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is being proactive in a sense, now, the same things happened. We actually see it, right? In Acts 17, we read about it. The Jews come in, and they are giving a message contrary. They're trying to have Paul and Silas persecuted. Now, they leave by night, of course, and go to Berea. Uh, and But if we look, we've already read through verses 1 through 9, right? So they, you know, verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authority, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. Right. So not only are they trying to persecute Paul and Silas, but they're also persecuting all those who have agreed with this message and helped Paul and Silas. And so it would make sense that they would also be uh, potentially persecuting all those who Paul, Paul's writing to in First Thessalonians. Right. Because he's writing to the saints. And so it would make sense that they would also be persecuting them and giving affliction to them. But he goes on in verse 10 of Acts 17, it says the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. And now these were noble-minded, uh, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether the things were so. Uh, therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Verse 13, we see the same thing happen again. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found uh, out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Brie also. They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. And now those who ex uh, escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They left. Okay, then we get to the Sermon on Mars Hill, uh, and then Paul's in Corinth. And so we see this, this happening city by city. Right, Paul goes to Thessalonica. He's he's driven out by the Jews. He goes to Berea. He's driven out by the Jews. And it's the same concept, uh, and we see they weren't just driving them out, but they were giving a, a message contrary. So if we go back to First Thessalonians, what Paul is doing, similar to what he's doing in Galatians, is he's he's giving authority to the message. And I don't mean it's not Paul's authority. Obviously, God gives the authority of the message, but. Paul's ministry 
and who he is, his place of office, and all of these things gives gives warrant. We see this like in Hebrews 2, right? The author of Hebrews uh, shows that signs, miracles, and wonders are affirming the message by, is affirming the messenger. And so Paul is using that same concept to defend his message, right? So in chapter two, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, in context to this, he says in chapter one, verse nine, for they themselves report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Okay, that's important for chapter four, but to wait for his son from heaven and we raise from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's a really, really cool verse there in, in verse 10. So there's the message, right? There's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to return. He's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. In verse one, and again, he's talking about this report. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid, amid much opposition, right? This persecution came. It didn't phase us. We still spoke to you about the same thing. For our exhortation does not come from error and purity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So I'm appealing to God's authority. So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. So now he's saying, we didn't come looking for money. We weren't looking for anything from you. Uh, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. And so he's, he's basically arguing against accusations of himself, right? I didn't come for your money. I didn't have a pretext for greed. I didn't come for reputation, although I did appeal to God's authority. He asserted our authority because of who we are. And he goes on in verse seven, talking about his attitude towards them, how the, he had an affection for them. Uh, verse eight, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Verse nine, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. So he's defending his claims. Uh, you are witness, verse 10, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, so, so the reason I would suggest he's being a bit proactive here is in verse 13. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Uh, for you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and prophets and drove us out. Okay, so he's he's talking about this suffering and affliction that they're going through, and he's encouraging them in that the message which you are suffering for is legitimate. It's authentic. Uh, it, it's from the, from the mouth of God. It's based on his authority, not my own. And here's my defense of that. Uh, and, and so, again, in contrast to Galatians, he's doing it as reactive. You have given in to this message of the Jews. You've shown that you don't believe the message I gave. Here's my here's the reason it's from God, and here's the reason you need to turn from that and and uh, believe again, change your mind, and believe again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, it's true. We sometimes forget that there was so much opposition in the first century just to the church and the church's message of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ going forth into what is oftentimes a very Jewish world in this part of the world and how it had a stronghold, especially when he goes into the synagogues. There's a lot of pushback and Paul's trying to fight against that and fight for his credibility, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, and it's, uh, we look at these, uh, this instance and, and we look at Paul as like, it's Paul, you know, like it's Paul. <laughs> but in the first century, uh, he didn't have that reputation necessarily. His reputation was uh, he was a Pharisee and he killed a bunch of people in the church. And then uh, he went crazy and turned to this Jesus Christ guy. Right. And so now he's, he's, and we see, we kind of see that. I mean, that's that a John paraphrase, but we kind of see that as he's, he's working through his ministries uh, you know, even in the beginning of acts starting after, you know, his conversion in acts nine, 
<clears throat> we see him constantly having to kind of defend against that. And so what when Paul is appealing, when Paul is giving the message of Jesus Christ, people believe that message. But then you have these Jews who are coming in and and they have a long history. It's kind of like the fallacy of it's been around forever. You know, I mean, various systems of theology deal with that argument. But, you know, these are Jews. Uh, they have much more authority than Paul would have. Right. It's easier to believe that. And so so Paul's constantly having to defend himself. It's, it's kind of like the battle of authorities. Right. Who, who, who am I going to believe? And you've got Paul and then you've got this group of Jews. Right? Where do I go with that? And so he's mm-hmm. he's constantly having to defend to defend against that. Uh, it would be easier, actually, I think, if the persecution was coming from the Romans, because that persecution would be more physical. I don't care what you believe. I'm not even going to argue against it. You're going to do what I say or you're going to have physical punishment. Right. That's a little bit more of the Roman persecution. But from the Jews point of view, it's it's an easier argument for them. And they stand on authority, which was much respected amongst Jews who uh, Paul is is ministering to at times. Now, you mentioned it at the beginning, and then it's come up several times in even just the passages that have been read, but this idea of opposition and suffering and persecution. In fact, it permeates this entire letter. So we need to talk about it at least briefly. What does this text teach us, John, about how to rightly endure trials and suffering and persecution in this life to the glory of God? Yeah, I, I think a few things that are that are important to m- at least mention. One, suffering uh, is to be expected, mm. right? I, I think Paul approaches things just, I mean, even in his defense. Now, he's talking about himself, so you got to be careful not to apply that to everyone, right? Uh, but there are other passages within the scriptures that suffering and affliction will happen. It's just an, it's just a part of of the message, really. But he mentions multiple times in in his defense of his ministry. Uh, you saw the suffering. You, I, I told you it was coming. It did come. Uh, th- that kind of mentality. So I think suffering uh, is is a bit inevitable. You know, what degree and all that kind of stuff. It, it depends. I think the second thing, though, that's encouraging is we have uh, we have been given the tools to suffer well. Uh, to suffer well. I think there's a there's a right way to suffer and a wrong way to suffer, right? And and, and a whole bunch of stuff in between. Um, but for instance, and I think you know we mentioned it earlier. Uh, a significant part of suffering well is recognizing the tools, and one of those being the body of Christ. Uh, right? We see we see Paul suffering, but he's suffering with others, right? And there's it's this idea of kind of carrying each other's burdens, that kind of mentality. You know, Paul is he's suffering. He recognizes the suffering. He knows their suffering, and so he checks on them. He sends Timothy, and Timothy comes back with a positive message, and Paul then encourages them in their suffering. And he's encouraged in his suffering because of their faithfulness, right? And so there's this idea that suffering together is much better than suffering alone, if that, if that makes any sense. And so as we, as the body of Christ, are, are confronted with suffering and affliction, whether it be, and, and I, I would suggest in this letter, both are mentioned uh, in, some, in some ways, whether it be because of our faithfulness to the Lord and our belief in Jesus Christ, or whether it just simply because of the state of, of the world, right? It's, it's a fallen world. There's a noahic effect that is, that is just, it just stinks, <laughs> you know, but there's no avoiding it. That just, it's part of life. It's part of sin. And, and uh, of course, as we get into the end of Thessalonians, we're given a, a hope in that, but nonetheless, that, that suffering is, is brought up and I think as we as we suffer for Christ specifically, as we suffer because of our faith, I think a significant aspect of that is others, as we are encouraged by the body of Christ. Uh, and so it's coming, but God has has given us what's has given us the tools to uh, to do it well. I think Peter mentions this really well in his letters too. And of course, we won't go there because we're talking about Paul. But uh, but suffering well, it's it's a it's a big deal, and I think the, the letter to the Thessalonians gives us a lot of examples of that, uh, whether it's Paul's suffering, the Thessalonians, and their suffering, but ultimately both of them and how they work in tandem, I think is really important. There's so much more there we could talk yeah. about, but time is going quickly, and we can't talk about First Thessalonians without tackling 4.13 through 5.11. You talking about, and you mentioned this earlier, the catching up believers and the coming day of the Lord, some end times eschatology talk here. 
I'm wondering if you could quickly walk us through this text and point out some implications for us today. Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic text. Oftentimes, uh, if you go to uh, like a funeral and the pastor is giving any kind of message, oftentimes you'll find this text. And the reason is because I think the context is that those in Thessalonica have those who have passed away and they are concerned about what's going to happen. All right. And so we see this in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So we see those who don't have hope and and what does death mean for them? Right. It's the end. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's our hope. Right. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to be called up uh, to Christ. That That is not going to happen prior to those who have fallen asleep, which is encouraging for those who have those who have fallen asleep, right? Uh, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so there's this term that's used often to explain this phenomenon, that's the rapture, uh, is, is often talked about. And so if we kind of, uh, if we go to John 14, verses 1 to 3, it's Jesus's words here, it gives kind of a broad view of what Paul is talking about here. And he says this in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Okay, so he's, he's preparing the disciples and he's on earth, right? So he's on earth talking. He says, for I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is on earth. He's going to go and prepare a place. Verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Okay, so now he's coming back and receive you to myself. And so then those who are believers in Christ will then be received to Christ that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, so it's kind of a broad understanding of this concept of Jesus's return. <clears throat> so we go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, and Paul is dealing with this in a little bit more detail, right? Jesus has already went. He's preparing a place. Those who have died, Jesus is going to return. And when he does, those who have died in Christ will be the first. They will be resurrected and then those who are alive at Jesus's coming will then come, will meet him, will be received by him with those who have uh, just been resurrected. And so it's this concept of, of the rapture uh, message. Now, this is, is debated amongst what, uh, when the rapture happens, if the rapture happens, uh, how it happens, right? All of that kind of stuff. But I would suggest Paul really lays this out pretty, uh, pretty clearly here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. And in verse 18, I think, is the, the first implication uh, for us. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This message is comforting, right? Uh, and that's why it's often used in a funeral setting. Your loved one has passed away and you're absent from them now. They're absent from the body. They're present with the Lord. That's one encouraging message. The other encouraging message is that they will be resurrected and you will be together with them with Christ. And this, this uh, caught up together, this bringing up to Christ will take place at some point, no one's being, uh, if you're believing in Christ, you're not being left behind, right? Whether you're dead or alive, you're going to be together at one point. And we get into chapter five and he continues on and uh, he's, he's kind of moved on from the purpose of encouraging the believers at this point to now informing them. Uh, he says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you for you yourselves know, I think it's really funny how Paul does this. You have no need of anything to be written to you, but I'm going to do it anyways. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, right? It's going to be unexpected. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen. The day of the Lord, and I do want to sit here for a second, the day of the Lord is a bit of a loaded term, right? In, in Old Testament prophecy, this is mentioned a lot, the day of the Lord. You see it in Ezekiel uh, quite a bit. Uh, see it in Joel uh, talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord, and I'm going to make this statement without necessarily defending it because of time, but the day of the Lord, I would suggest, is the time of, of Jesus's return. Okay, so uh, what I would suggest is that the day of the Lord is, is uh, rapture to basically the book of Revelation, that's contents of the day of the Lord. 
It's used in many different ways within the Old Testament. It's used, but it's almost always used for times of wrath, God's wrath. Uh, in, in every sense of judgment, it's mentioned that way. And God's judgment, God's wrath at some point in time. And in this context, in this context, I would suggest what he's talking about is the tribulation period that's going to come between the rapture of the believers and the defeat of Satan, okay, in, in uh, Revelation 19 and 20. So what we see here is for yourselves, know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, notice the pronouns, they, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape, okay? So again, there's this uh, there's this day of the Lord, it's coming like a thief in the night, and we, uh, there's no we in this, it's they. So there's these two groups, right? Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the Thessalonians, he's talking to the saints, the believers. <clears throat> so I would suggest that the believers are not going to experience the destruction, the judgment here that he's talking about. Because why? The end of chapter 4, we've been caught up together with them in the clouds already. We've, we're with Christ and would you add in there chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come? Exactly. Exactly. And and it mentions that same wrath statement is made in chapter 5, too, verse 9. It goes, like in verse 9, it says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Okay, so go back to verse four, it says, but, and that's a really big, that's a really big uh, contrastive there, uh, pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape, but you brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. We won't be part of that day, that day of the Lord, which is God's judgment. Uh, we, or you specifically in this context, you, and then he identifies them. Who's the you? It's the brethren, specifically in this letter, those in the, Thessal uh, the Thessalonians. They are not in darkness that the day would overtake them. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not, not of night nor of darkness. Now he uses uh, the we there, the third person plural. We are not night nor of darkness. Sorry, first person plural. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. It's interesting. I love this, that Paul, he gives the implications here. We're not of night, not of darkness. That doesn't mean don't do anything, right? Be alert, be sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Since we are the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. This message, this message that we're not going to be part of that judgment, that we're not going to be in darkness, that we're not going to be part of the day of the Lord, this is not a message of complacency. This is not a message that leads to apathy. This is a message that leads to alertness and soberness as we're recognizing that there are those who will be part of that darkness, right? And so let's, uh, let's strive towards faithfulness. Let's be faithful. Let's be loving, uh, and let's present the hope of salvation uh, as it's mentioned in verse eight, for God, again, for God has not destined us for wrath, right? So this is kind of, it's a really, really important passage. And I think the implications for us is, is and, and it's, you know, we go back to this whole suffering concept. I think that it's a, a very encouraging message for uh, the believer, uh, for the Christian. And it's not just encouraging because uh, I don't have to be a part of the tribulation, uh, but it, I think it's encouraging because for many reasons, but one of those is that we have a hope at the end of this. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you're, you're going through suffering, you're going through tribulation, but there's a confident expectation that I will be in a resurrected state with Christ, whom I love dearly. Uh, and of course, as you get in Revelation, you get more detail of what that's going to look like. Uh, so it's a very important message, I believe, for us today for Christian conduct and for the way we live our lives now. Yeah, truly comforting, encouraging, and edifying for us. Absolutely. Rightly understood. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering, what would you say is the main thrust of this book? Why is First Thessalonians important? Why would God preserve it for us today, John? I mean, <laughs> I think Paul writes it. He writes the letter to the Thessalonians as an encouragement to them at some level as a reaction to their faithfulness. And, and I think it's unique 
in a sense in that, right? He writes, he writes to the Ephesians, uh, but even the letter to the Ephesians is a very, uh, is a very informative letter. He's addressing conflict amongst Gentile and Jew, and, and he's explaining the, the single body concept, kind of the makeup of the church, the purpose of the church. And it's a very important letter. But 1 Thessalonians, in some senses, I think is a really unique in that Paul is simply writing because he's encouraged. <laughs> he's simply writing because of their faithfulness. He's exhorting them. We see the, the, the statement excel still more multiple times in the letter of First Thessalonians, right? You're doing well, now do it more. Hmm. That kind of concept. <clears throat> and again, Thessalonians aren't perfect. I think there's a reason that he's having to, uh, at some level, address his, his authority. He's having to uh, discuss some of this, you know, don't, this doesn't mean you don't continue to strive to faithfulness and holiness and you're, it doesn't mean you get to just be apathetic, that kind of concept. I think there's a reason he's addressing some of those things. So they're not perfect, but he's, it's just simply a letter of encouragement. I think it's a, in some sense, a reactionary letter. You know, I'm encouraged. And so I want to encourage you. And it shows the encouragement that we can have as believers, as a body of Christ, that we can encourage each other. Uh, it's a very hopeful letter. I think it's full of, of a confident expectation, not a, oh, I hope it's not raining tomorrow, but a, I know this to be true and I'm confident that I can expect this, right? This kind of anchor in our, in our lives of what's to come and that as suffering comes, there's encouragement to be had. Uh, and I think First Thessalonians is a great letter for that. How has God used First Thessalonians in your life, John, to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? Yeah, it, it actually has been uh, an anchor for me. You know, I have uh, I'm a, a sib I have one sibling, and she's six years older than me. But she passed away uh, from heart failure a few years ago, uh, and this has been First Thessalonians has been a letter of of uh, encouragement for me. Uh, you know, I, I preached the message at her funeral, and uh, this this First Thessalonians four and five was what I gave. You know, I, I, I walked through Isaiah 6, I think, is a, is a great uh, testimony to God's grace and really a parallel of the gospel, if you will. And then I walked through 1 Thessalonians as an encouragement to those in the room who are believers. And as I'm, as I'm giving that message, it encourages me as well. You know, I, I believe uh, Anna, it's my sister, she, I believe she believed in Christ. She had a hard life, but but she knew the gospel message and she believed it was true. And so I think I'll see her again one day, right? I'll be, I'll be caught up together with her. Uh, and that's a message of hope. And uh, it helps to encourage and, and helps to en endure the, the believer, right? As we, we're confronted with suffering. And so First Thessalonians has been uh, priceless, if I can say, in my life as I've uh, experienced various kinds of suffering. And as I've, as I've, it's encouraged me to uh, not forsake the assembling together, right? As Paul says, he's, he's, I, I want to see you. I'm ready to see you face to face. And I don't want to get into the whole online versus in-person church debate, but, but there's a really big, uh, I think, striving towards fellowship in First Thessalonians because we see the implications of that fellowship. And I've seen that play out. Uh, a lot in my life as well, whether going through suffering or just just doing the work of the Lord and being encouraged by others. You know, it's uh, uh, First Thessalonians has has uh, really shown that to be true. So it's, it's been a real encouragement for me. Well, thanks again for all the time you've given us today, John, and helping us understand First Thessalonians a little bit better. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Josiah. It's always a privilege, and I I pray that it is uh, of encouragement to those who are able to listen. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.